0: From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle.
1: Welcome to Total SF in Exile. Welcome back, Heather Knight, and welcome to the Pursuit of Happiness breakdown. We're going to do a movie breakdown, but this is also our Audrey Cooper exit interview Um, editor-in-chief of The Chronicle, leaving for New York. And uh, I wanted to ask you first, favorite Audrey Cooper memory, go.
2: Well, she's always supported our really weird ideas, probably the weirdest of which was when we said, we want to host Total SF Movie Nights at the Balboa Theater, starting with that classic, So I Married an Axe Murderer, that nobody saw. She supported that. She supported us um, expensing a bagpiper. She supported eating haggis with us in front of the packed theater. And she bought us the three of us matching t-shirts, which we still have, which, um, list the pentaverate, which fans of the movie know are the five wealthiest people in the world who control everything, including the newspapers.
1: <coughs> that was a super fun night. And, um, Audrey was really game. She was always really into it. Kind of like a, the weirder the <laughs> idea, the better. Yeah. Tough editor, changed the newsroom for the better, but uh, also had fun too. And she's going to bring that to WNYC, and uh, I think they're going to get a really good editor there. And 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 I, I I envy them.
2: I hope that we don't have New York competitors who are going to try to write every subway line in one day.
1: Yeah, that would be messed up. Uh, Total NYC. I think it comes up uh, in this episode, <laughs> which is the pursuit of happiness. It was a movie that Audrey had mentioned a couple of times. We tried to get her to come and do Sister Act, um, the movie she hates (laughs) the most. We thought that would be a funny final episode, but this ended up being really good because Pursuit of Happiness, starring Will Smith, 2006 movie... Um, about uh, you know the homelessness in San Francisco and a, a feel good mm-hmm. story, and I think it's a good one to to, to end. Yes, on.
2: it was a great conversation.
1: Audrey Cooper exit interview. Listen for Heather's lightning round. We're gonna try to get her to cry. <laughs> and uh, I'm Peter Hartlove. I'm Heather Knight. And this is Total SF.
2: Thank you very much.
1: congratulations. Um, We are recording this on the day that you announced you'll be going to New York, WNYC. Well, I wanted to start and just like go back. Do you remember, do you remember your first day in San Francisco?
0: Yes, because I was um, maybe 10 and it was the first vacation we ever took as a family where, um, that we were just, maybe we had gone to Disney World before that but that's like a kid vacation this was the first adult vacation we ever took where I got to get on a plane from Kansas City and we went to San Francisco and it was um, the first big city you know when I shouldn't tell you this but you know when the um, security questions say what was the first city you ever visited mine is San Francisco <laughs>
2: oh wow yeah
0: it, I mean I it really it, it, it was and and I remember it was the first time I had ever seen um, honestly, people of Chinese descent. <laughs> is crazy? I'd never been exposed to that before. Wow. It was the first time I had seen a homeless person. I remember it so distinctly. And I even remember where we were. We were right in um, across the street from Macy's. And there was a, a man sleeping in the doorway of a retail shop. And I was talking or not paying attention. And I almost tripped over him. And my dad picked me up and lifted me over him. And it was the first time I realized that there were people who didn't have homes at night. And it really, um, like it, w- it was, it's one of my earliest memories, actually, of hmm. being here and seeing that. We stayed at a place near Chinatown. I've always, I, whenever I drive through there, I always try to look for the hotel. It, was, it seemed really fancy at the time, but my family didn't have a lot of money, so I'm sure it wasn't. Um, And then we drove down the coast, down Highway 1, and I threw up all over our rental car. So really, it was an excellent vacation all around. (laughs) Tops. It was clear that I was destined to come back to San Francisco after (laughs) that.
1: This is a better story than Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. (laughs) Why are we talking
2: about the movie? (laughs)
0: There's no bone
1: scanner that you kept losing. So right there. um, I mean,
0: I'm sure I lost something, but not a bone scanner. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I'm wondering at what point you kind of fell for the city, because I want to mention, you know, first of all, that when you announced that you're leaving the Chronicle, we were shocked. It was on a Zoom. Nobody knew it. Usually this kind of thing gets out. There are rumors. Usually it gets to Heather, and then I find out. <laughs> uh, Everybody's you guys totally aren't shocked. are good
0: reporters. What can I say?
1: I, I, must be. <laughs> but the one thing that, like, I look back and think maybe I should have known is you went out and did this tour of San Francisco on a Twitter thread, which was a really good Twitter thread that was just kind of this little love letter to San Francisco. And now I realize, like, that was kind of goodbye.
0: It, yeah. It was, yeah, it was. It was my... Yeah. It's funny because one of my husband's friends actually knew that we were... Um, I I wanted to give the Chronicle and everybody a really long time because I know it's really, it's hard when the editor leaves and I don't want, you know, I care about you all and this place so much, I didn't want to leave you in the lurch. So on Mother's Day, um, he asked me, what do you want? And I said, first of all, I've been stuck in the house with you all for a long time because of this sheltering place so I want to get away from my family for Mother's Day. But I wanted to take my Vespa, my orange and black Giants-coated... Vespa, and um, say goodbye to all the places I loved in San Francisco. So one of his friends um, sent him my tweet thread and said, context is everything. And it's true. It was, it was my goodbye to San Francisco because it's such a magical and wonderful city that um, is flawed in so many ways. But too many of us focus on all of the bad things and don't focus on what it was that drew us here in the first place. And it's really lovely and, and um, I, it's hard to say goodbye to it and I don't, I don't feel like I am saying goodbye I just think I'm saying chill out for a while San Francisco but I'm hoping I'll be back
2: Well, I can't believe I didn't pick up on another obvious clue, which is that you changed your Twitter handle and took SF out of it. (laughs) Like, hello.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, you you may have noticed on Slack, uh, Roland Yee, one of our business reporters, was like, why did you change it? And I just ignored (laughs) him. And
2: then I noticed you didn't answer. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: ignored him. But, you know, I, I, I explained to our social crew when I wanted to change it, it's, Twitter handles were kind of like a tattoo you get when you're 18 and you think this is going to be so awesome. And then you're like, oh, I wish I didn't get the tattoo in exactly that kind of way. And that's kind of how I felt about my Twitter handle with uh, it having SF in it. That wasn't going to go over very well in New York.
2: <laughs> but if you changed it to Audrey Cooper NYC, that kind of would have given it away, I guess. that
0: probably. Well, also, I couldn't come back. This is, this is neutral yeah. ground, Audrey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can go anywhere in the world with Audrey Has Um Tell us about your job. WNYC, public radio, um, and some other stuff. You're overseeing, um, it seems like, a, a, f- a few different parts of the newsroom.
0: Yeah, the live news shows, the newsroom, and Gothamist, which is um, a website that's r- really fun that um, WNYC bought. I mean... I, I mean, the truth is I don't know a lot about it because I haven't been there and I'm not going to be able to see it. But, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, the way the way my husband explained this to our son because he was not okay with moving out of San Francisco and I, I don't blame him, but the way he explained it was um, mommy likes to build things and she already built, Things at the Chronicle, and now she wants to see if she can build things in a different city, and um, Mm -hmm. and that's really true. I mean, I I do think there's a point in time in which um, I said this to you all on a note. I I think there's a point where you know you have a house and there are holes in the walls and you don't see them after a while and you just think like, well, that's how the wall is and the carpet's kind of messed up and and then you try to sell the house and the realtor says, oh my God, fix that hole and fix that carpet. I kind of felt like I was getting to that point, and that you all will be served by somebody who notices the holes in the walls, and notices the holes in the carpet, and um, and I think we've accomplished so many things that it was you know that that it's time for somebody else to come in and bring something else to it, and it's time for me. I mean, look, I'm. I, I'm happy to say I'm not old enough to retire, although I, I would like to, <laughs> and I'm not <laughs> young enough to stick around either, so it was time to move on, and, and I'll, I'll miss you all a lot, and I, frankly, I don't know what the hell I'm doing at this new job, and I think it's painfully obvious to them too, um, but, I, but I do think New York is an interesting place to be right now because it's the epicenter of major crises that are happening in America. It's the epicenter of the coronavirus, which is only a few months old. And in many ways, it's the epicenter of the crisis we find ourselves with systemic racism. And I think it's really important that a city like that, that deserves good local news and is crawling with journalists, none of whom cover local news. I think a city like that deserves something more than that. Yeah. Even though I don't know well where the hell I'm going in the city <laughs> or anything about it. And I apologize, but um, I will learn. I promise I will learn. <laughs>
2: well, we'll miss you very much and we'll miss having you on our Total SF podcast. Is hope- there going to be a Total NYC? Um,
0: <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but I won't be on that one because I don't know anything about it. <laughs>
1: Well, we will we will uh, get back to um, grilling you. You have to go through the lightning round. That's your your uh, your
2: parting gift. Last Thanks, podcast
1: Heather. act <laughs> on uh, Total SF, but uh, we're here for Pursuit of Happiness. Um, Audrey, you've been on several movie breakdowns with us. I always invite you back because you are always Amazing. coming with someone <laughs> something thoughtful to say, and um, and you like movies. Um, And you've been kind of asking for this one for a while. So um, Pursuit of Happiness, 2006 movie, one of our more recent breakdowns, Will Smith um, playing Chris Gardner, a real-life man who was homeless in San Francisco. I met my father for the first time when I was 28 years old. When I had children, my children were going to know who their father was. Chris Gardner was doing his best. We don't need two. We don't need one.
2: Maybe next quarter. It's possible.
0: But his best... Hey! Wait! ...wasn't enough. Man, I got two questions for you. What do you do, and how do you do
1: it? I'm a stockbroker. Stockbroker. Oh. Hey, I'm gonna let you hang on to my car for the weekend, but I need it back for Monday. Feed the meter.
0: (laughs) I need the rent. I can't
2: wait anymore. I need you out of here in the morning. You got to trust me, all right? I trust you. Because I'm getting a better job.
1: Um, I dug around in the Chronicle. I wanted to give you guys a few facts that I found here. Um, first of all, and this is the most important, Cecil Williams, the Reverend Cecil Williams of Glide Memorial, had to audition to play himself.
2: <laughs> is <laughs> really?
1: Is that true? Yes. They brought wow. Like other Cecil Williamses in there, and then he had to audition to play himself. He had, like, three lines. What's that?
0: He had, like, three lines in the whole thing.
1: Wow, that's That's, high standards. That's what the Chronicle reported. And uh, according to Leah Garchik, he was fitted with a little wig to um, give him some hair. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Chris Gardner, who Smith plays in the movie, um, took Smith on a 1 a.m. tour of the Tenderloin to prep for the role. This was Will Smith's quote in the Chronicle. Chris is 6'5", and I'm 6'2 two and, a half, and we're big, strong men who could probably beat up most people, and it was still terrifying out there. And uh, Got a Little Man Clapping by Mick LaSalle. Mick LaSalle said, The beauty of the film is its honesty and its outlines. It's nothing like the usual success story depicted on screen. Having proceeded to establish Chris as a great guy, the pursuit of happiness puts him through hell. Anyway, I I remember when I saw it, I had a positive reaction. When I rewatched it, um, in some ways it was harder to watch, and in some ways I liked it a lot more. Um, Let's start with what we like about it. And Audrey, you started to get into it. Um, It sounded like you were talking about a little bit of authenticity.
0: I think it, yeah, I think it is... Well, as you know, I mean, we're not going to get through this podcast without me telling you guys that you like a certain movie that is completely inauthentic to San Francisco. (laughs) Um, but, but I, I mean, I really did appreciate how they had, they had building shots that are not the building shots you always see of San Francisco when, you know, some guy says the cab is going to take him to Noe Valley. It actually takes him to Noe Valley, not some weird church in the Bronx or wherever. (laughs) Um, and, you know, I feel, and even the homelessness situation, which is real, is depicted in such, I think for a movie of this time in particular, was portrayed in such a nuanced way. We ha- we see people who are passed out face down on the sidewalk and people are stepping over them. We see people who are struggling to make ends meet. We see you know, people who are clearly very mentally ill, and I think for a movie of that time, even now in the city, we're having a hard time coming to terms with the complexity of our homeless population, and it did that in a way that was very real, and then when you add to it the context that we're living in with... with Um, the the realization, I think, by many white people that we are living in a time of incredible white supremacy on a spectrum that goes from far-right Nazis to just general white fragility. This movie, I think, explains in a way that's very heartfelt the problem with systematic racism and systematic and generational poverty. And I, I don't mean to get too depressing, but... Um, and in some ways, my problem with the movie, and we can get on this later, is the, the nice bow, as Mick says, that it wraps up in is almost too convenient for, for today's times. But I do appreciate that you get a real sense that even though this character is hardworking and smarter than any of us, because he can finish a Rubik's Cube, <laughs> and I bet none of us no. have ever done that. No. Um, he still faces all of these challenges that we as white people will never have to face. And so I think it's a very relevant movie to watch nowadays, and it ages very well.
2: Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And I think um, the scenes with the, you know, well-meaning white rich stockbrokers who thought that they were being so generous and amazing by giving him this chance, even though he showed up, you know, in that... um, tank top <laughs> covered in paint cause he'd been arrested for not paying his parking tickets and came straight from jail to the interview. Um, all of those interactions were so cringy, like, um, especially the one where the, the head of the, of Dean Witter is, um, forgot his wallet and needs $5 to take the cab and just assumes that, um, Will Smith's character can give him $5 no problem because everybody else can that he knows. And then just that tension between him when he's looking in his wallet for like literally his last money to pay for his child's food and they have nowhere to sleep and he hands it over. And of course the guy has no idea. Just it was uh, so hard to watch, like considering everything that's going on right now, but I think that it portrayed those relationships really well. And I also thought it did a really good job of showing what it's really like to be homeless in San Francisco I've been covering that issue for a long time, and people uh, just have to scramble so much. It's just constantly running, running, running to get your next shelter bed, or to find out you know, who can take care of your kid, and where's your next dollar gonna come from, and where's your next meal gonna come from. And there's, It's so hard, even that line outside of Glide that you have to line up for every single night rather than just have a, a permanent slot until you figure things out. It's just, um, there's no time to rest. Let alone, you know, get yourself back on your feet. So I thought they but did a know, really good job.
0: One of the things that I really, I came to really appreciate San Francisco when I watched this again because there are so many things that are in the movie that have been addressed by our elected leaders, and that includes keeping you in jail until you pay your parking tickets. Mm-hmm. Like that's not something we do in San Francisco yeah. anymore. Um, eviction rules, just kicking somebody out, like that doesn't happen anymore. Unpaid internships don't happen anymore. And all of these sort of institutional problems that he faces and overcomes, we've solved them in San Francisco by saying it can't happen anymore. And that realization really made me proud to live in the city that has had this progressive outlook on the things that are very difficult for people of color in particular, but people in poverty in general to overcome, and we have fixed that. I don't know that he would face the same challenges today as he did in 2006 or whenever, mm-hmm. whenever he was dealing with these issues.
2: I think that's true, but I don't think the city has fixed its homeless crisis at all, and it pretty much works nope. the same way it did back then, as far as I could tell, so...
1: Yeah, and I I think this was a, um, it's really remarkable because usually movies that show San Francisco authentically are made by people who have history here. Um, Last Black Man in San Francisco, um, Philip Kaufman's movies, even his like, you know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it feels like San Francisco. Uh, Gabriel Muccino, he's an Italian director, came here and he gets the parking right. He gets um, all these little things right, parts of the city you don't see in movies. I think that's really remarkable. Um, I will say, like a lot of this movie, and we're discussing it all as if it really happened. There's a lot of liberties here, and Hollywood does this all the time. But um, he did not have a son who was like four or five years old; it was an infant. Which
2: should have been even harder.
1: They'd made, yeah, that's worse. Yeah. They made him look, and I think he would admit this too. He wrote a biography, and the involvement with the wife-slash-girlfriend, the real life was much more complicated than that. But there are little details that are exactly the same, and they surprised me. That scene with the Ferrari, where he's walking by, and the guy... Man,
2: I got two questions for you. What do you do, and how do you do it? (laughs)
1: I'm a stockbroker. Stockbroker? Oh. I had to go to college to be a stockbroker, huh? You don't have to. I had to be good with numbers and good with people.
2: That's it. Hey, you take care. Hey, I'm going to let you hang on to my car for
1: the weekend, but I need it back for Monday. Feed the meter. <laughs> That's very close to based on fact. Um, Chris Gardner was actually moving his car, and this guy wanted his spot, and he said, yeah, I'll give you my spot, but answer two questions, and it was about becoming a stockbroker. And then the um, the scene that I thought was the absolute most unrealistic, when he's staying in jail overnight and running there, and he's covered in paint. Um, I do a lot of painting. I've done a lot of painting of my house recently. I don't have it <laughs> spackled all over my face. And if I was in jail overnight, I could remove it. All right. that But that happened. I mean, that is a, very close to a scene that happened. It was... Um, a parking tickets. He was in jail for much longer than in the movie and ran to his appointment and used his circumstance to kind of make it a positive, which I think is just an absolute, it's a good scene in the movie, but it, it actually happened pretty close mm-hmm. to that. Um, So I I think as much as certain parts of the movie, when we talk about things we don't like, the depiction of hippies
2: (laughs) doesn't work for me.
1: Um, Why did
2: he leave that bone scanner with that singing hippie lady?
1: Oh, bone scanners. We need a whole section (laughs) on the flipping bone scanner. But um, I I just felt like there were a lot of parts of this that felt way more authentic than most movies that take place in San Francisco. Except
2: for Sister Act. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> Favorite scenes. Are there scenes that um, you just love, you think about when you think about this movie?
0: I mean, I don't know that I love them, but the uh, to me, the iconic scene in this movie is him and the kids sleeping in the Bart bathroom on a bed of toilet paper, like the nest of toilet paper your mom taught you to make in a public bathroom they put on the floor, and they sleep there. And um, and my son said to me when we were watching it, he said, why are they doing that? And I said, well, first of all, that was back when BART had bathrooms that you could go into, which would never happen nowadays because you couldn't do that. But second of all, like the idea that you would be so desperate and you would have so few choices to sleep in a BART, I, I don't even think I would use a BART bathroom, much less sleep in it with my child. And that's what... I think that's the scene that jumps to my mind um, more than anything. Mm-hmm. And, and and I just
1: love that. I mean, he's been dragging his kid through this. At times, he kind of has to be insensitive to his kid. And when he when he's at his lowest, he lets his imagination and 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 that mental acuity that he was using at you know Dean Witter he uses to spark his kid's imagination and, and he talks about how the freaking bone scanner is a time machine and they're dinosaurs now and they're cavemen and and relieves the fear of his child and i think that's that's like the scene that like i look at it and going that's like where he got his oscar nomination yeah. heather you. i was gonna say
2: that same scene i think that is the quintessential scene in this movie it's you know it's really hard to watch but it seems very authentic and And also sweet that he is willing to do that for his child.
1: I like the the scene, too, where they're playing basketball. I was going to say that. I was going to say that same scene. Not built up. It's not built up as, like, at at the time, I just think it's going to be another, you know, failure that we have to watch on the way to him persevering. And his kid's talking about wanting to be in the NBA, and he snaps at his kid like he's been doing a lot in the movie, understandably. I mean, they're trying to survive. And then he pulls his kid in for a lesson. Hey.
2: Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. Not even me. All right? All right. You got a dream. You got to protect it. People can't do something themselves. They want to tell you, you can't do it. You want something? Go get it. Period.
0: Well, it's also a beautiful scene because it's filmed in one of those Chinatown basketball courts that looks over the whole city. And this is the thing that's so amazing about San Francisco is some of the most beautiful scenes are or spots are reserved for some of the poorest people, and that's, I mean, I really love that about San Francisco, and and you don't, you know, if you only live on Pack Heights and you only live in the marina, and or you only come here to visit Fisherman's Wharf when your family's in town, you don't see the basketball courts in Chinatown, but there are so many families that come here looking for something else and who use those courts and see the beauty of the city, and, you know, I don't know if they have moments like that there, but it, it really is something that's special about here because the beauty of San Francisco is not reserved only for the rich people. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a little nostalgic. Can you tell? You, I <laughs> can tell. <laughs> I am. I am. A little bit.
1: All right, our favorite part um, what you did not like about the movie. Uh, Audrey, I mean, I'll let you go okay, first.
0: Okay. It's, it's, it was a very. The scene where he gets hit by the car <laughs> and he his, his shoe gets knocked off and he can't find his shoe. I mean, I'm sorry, but you can find your damn shoe. Like that and he goes yeah. back to work without a shoe on. that doesn't make any sense. Like the shoe't <laughs> the shoe didn't go that far. People helped you find the shoe. like that just irritated me so much. Like everybody's too busy to find his shoe <laughs> that got knocked off his foot. <laughs> that was that, that's probably the thing I hate the most about this movie. <laughs>
1: Uh, Heather, things that bugged you. Uh,
2: I thought they made BART look sparkling clean. Like those stations were (laughs) like so clean and white and shiny. That is not what BART looks like.
0: I mean, it might've been in 2006. (laughs) We just don't remember because it was so long ago. It was the last time anyone cleaned it.
1: (laughs) I can't believe we're like in 20 minutes into this and no one has mentioned the fake BART station at Deboche Park or whatever it's called, they they built, you know, they built a fake BART station. So when you went on that little chase and ran down the BART, yeah, they, they built this whole fake BART. And, uh, I mean, why can they build a fake BART
0: station? We can't build a real BART station (laughs) in less than 20 (laughs) years. That's bullshit
1: too. Yes. Um, other things that bugged you, there's gotta be more.
2: I don't think Cecil Williams really stood outside, um, managing the, the line for beds something tells me.
0: (laughs) No, I don't think so. And you know, I mean, I'm a short timer here so I can say it, but like the line at glide has always bugged me because I don't believe that you really need to put people outside and subject them to that. I think it's a little cynical and, um, you know, uh, you can send me hate mail now, San Francisco, I've finally said it, but I, I just don't think that's good for the tenderloin to make people do that. I don't think it's, right, and I don't think it's necessary, and I don't think it was necessary then either.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Everything with the bone scanners. I think it's supposed to be, like, this funny Keystone Cops thing with all the hippies taking the bone scanner, and number one, don't leave your bone scanner with, like, someone playing music outside. Um, And over and over again, at the point where he got in the BART uh, car... And the bone scanner's out, and then he drops it. I'm just like, I never want to <laughs> see this bone see scanner stupid again. Stupid <laughs> bone scanner again. Um, that bugged me. The depiction of hippies, like the homeless, they used real homeless. I mean, it's super authentic. And every time we see a hippie, it's like they're from a Cheech and Chong mm-hmm. movie. I mean, it's just like, hey, man, I'm getting my time machine. <laughs> they look like they're like, they looked like they went and got all these homeless and paid them money to get this authentic experience, and then they went to a high school that was having Hippie Day during Spirit Week and then brought a yeah. couple of them out to do the hippie The
2: time scenes. seemed um, off with that, too, because it seemed like they were trying to depict people from, like, the Summer of Love, late 60s, but the movie took place in the 80s, so you have all these, like, stockbrokers in suits and then these um, time-traveling hippies thrown in. It seemed like the decades were not aligned.
1: Other things you didn't like?
0: I. One thing I, I hate when this happens, but when the real person like appears in a movie yeah. that's about them, and it's clear that yeah. it's kind of like what happened with Stan Lee in every Marvel movie too. It's like, okay, I get it. You want to give Stan Lee a cameo? Like, come on, enough already. He had a movie made out of him. He doesn't need to walk across the skyline <laughs> and have Will Smith do a double take. I, again, cynical, but doesn't need to happen. We're, we're scraping right, well. the bottom of the barrel with <laughs> criticisms, though, I will just say. Yeah.
1: So, sounds like it's a pretty mm-hmm. good movie. Um, we've talked a little bit about the use of San Francisco already, but I wanted to just see if you guys had any other thoughts about um, San Francisco scenes or little San Francisco things that happened that struck you.
2: I thought chasing the muni bus was very accurate and that you can't count on the bus to wait for you. Even when they see you in the mirror, you have a little kid by your hand and you're carrying a bunch of stuff. You still have to make a mad dash because they will not wait.
0: I thought several times in the movie that, um, especially since we have a city that is 5% African American, which is extremely low, and there are times when he's sprinting across the financial district chasing a hippie, and I thought... If that happened nowadays with a black man chasing a white hippie, like people would freak out. And I don't know why that didn't happen. I mean, maybe I'm too much of the moment right now, but there are certain things where I'm like, I, I don't feel like we really addressed the racial component of this movie um, sufficiently to talk about why it was so hard for him to make it in mm-hmm. spite of being so damn smart.
2: Another scene like that was where one of the other stockbroker bosses Um, told him to go move the car, and here's the key, and it's hard to open the door, just jimmy it, just jimmy it. And he's sitting there Mm -hmm. doing that for ages, and that just put such a target on his back. Uh, Luckily, nothing happened, and he was able to move the car. But um, watching that now, you're just kind of like on the edge of your seat waiting for something bad to happen.
1: We'll be right back after this short break. So we've got a new feature today, Um, What other San Francisco people, living or dead, you'd like to see made into a movie or documentary? Um, Chris Gardner, pretty good choice. It's a good story. Other people that you guys have thought of that you'd just love to see made out of a movie, people or events?
0: Hmm. Mm, Heather, you've interviewed
1: like 42 (laughs) that fit this category.
2: Why am I drawing a blank now? Um, Go to Audrey first.
0: Okay. I'm sure Heather has better ideas than me. You know, the first thing I came up with was, um, and this is not a San Franciscan, so forgive me, but Mario Savio, I think, would be a fast... Like, we don't really talk about what happened to him after, you know, he stood on that cop car in Berkeley, and I really have always wanted to know more about Mario Savio. Um, I I think there are a lot of really crappy books and crappy... Um, movies and you know nostalgic nonsense that's made about the summer of love, but I think now, especially in retrospect, I, you know, I think part of our job at the Chronicle is to tell the first draft of history, and I always tell people what I one thing that I always tried to do as editor is remember that the way the Chronicle covered the summer of love was as a bunch of crime briefs because that's what it seemed like to the you know white, upper-class people who were getting the Chronicle back then. It was like a bunch of hippies in the park, smoking dope and getting arrested. It was a bunch of crime briefs. When I asked Carl Nolte what we did, he was like, wow, it was a bunch of crime stories. And then he <laughs> brushed me off. And now, in retrospect, we know it was the summer of love. And I always think, you know, you rarely know you're in the middle of a historic movement until it's over. And I think it would be interesting now... Um, when we went through the Occupy protests, I thought, and I talked a lot about this in the newsroom, is this is this our summer of love? I don't think it was. Um, but now, I think this time we're living in with the pandemic and being sheltering in place and the protests and support of our black and brown neighbors, is this our summer of love? And we won't we won't know until we're old and almost retired. But I think history is always, and you guys are such a great example and supporters of this. It's such a great way of explaining where you're going. And I, I I always think we need to have a smarter and maybe fictionalized movie about what actually happened to people during the summer of love.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a good one.
0: That's very true. That's a cop-out answer. Um, but you,
1: <laughs> no, no, it's good. I mean, it's it it's a crime story, and, and that's how we covered it. Except and one of the few examples was David Perlman. Perlman went in and wrote about the free clinic and and I'm sure he was considered, like, a lefty for doing that. Um, I think that's a mm-hmm. great one, and and I agree. I mean, breaking stereotypes about history, I think, is some of the best kind of journalism you can do because usually the real story's better. Um, I, I'd pick uh, Rose Pack. Oh, f- I 500%, think w- would yes. Be, I think such a fascinating story, you know, from— her being a journalist at the Chronicle um, in her early 20s and kicking ass, I mean, just a total firebrand at the Chronicle, which is probably why she left, she was too much for them. And then going into Chinatown and, you know, just with organization and with being a badass and with some other questionable moves that, you know, in his history might look that they were kind of justified the way that she operated she ended up essentially running the city. I mean, that's, I think, an incredible story, and it's a San Francisco story, and it's an immigrant story. Um, Rose Pack, I think, would be a great Mm -hmm. one.
2: I thought of one. I think there should be a movie about Del Seymour. Um, He's the mayor of the Tenderloin, quote-unquote, now. But um, I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago and didn't really realize how dramatic his background was. Um, He was one of the biggest drug dealers in mid-market for years and years, and... Slept in a dumpster for a long time, and really experienced you know the worst of the Tenderloin. But then turned his life around and um, is now considered the mayor of the Tenderloin and kind of the go-to guy whenever you're writing about that neighborhood or wanting to learn about it. So that I'd love to see that on screen.
0: Good one. I like both. Audrey, uh, no, I like both of those. I I think, uh, but Rose Pack is a that needs to be made. You guys should (laughs) write a book about Rose, I think. (laughs) And uh, I mean, one of the strangest nights that I I don't know if I ever told you guys about this that I've ever had at the Chronicle was, I don't even know if I was editor yet. I might've just been managing editor, but I saw Rose at a party and I went over to talk to her and she yelled at me and she said, you're coming to dinner with us. Did I ever tell you this story? And we ended up... And and I said, okay, because Rose yells at you and tells you to go. And I'm like, okay, I'm, this, this has to be good, right? As a journalist, you keep following the story. And we ended up in literally a smoke-filled room, because she smoked those cigars, in the back of a restaurant in Chinatown. And Willie Brown showed up, and Jane Kim showed up, who was the supervisor at the time, and Um, I should, should I name names? Why not? I'm leaving. And Naomi (laughs) and Harlan Kelly and Malcolm Young. And it was all these people who are really important in San Francisco. And they kept bringing food and bringing food and everybody was drinking and everybody was talking. And I was like, this is so weird that they're talking like this in front of me. And as a journalist, I was like, okay, who do I pay? Because I can't take free stuff from anyone. And then at the end of the night, um, (laughs) Rose points at Jane Kim and and you know I, Jane and I had a, a you know we were collegial but she was my supervisor and she said Jane you take Audrey home And we were like, no, that's okay, Rose. Like, we really don't need to do that. And she was insistent, and Willie started walking home, and he lived near us. And she was like, no, Jane, you will take Audrey home. And Jane looks at me and, like, shrugs, and is like, okay. So we get in the back of Jane's, like, sort of dirty Nissan or something like that. And it was the most awkward car ride home I've (laughs) ever had in my entire life. And I swore I would never end up in the back of a smoke-filled room with any of them ever again. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well when, when we write the book we will interview you about that night.
0: <laughs> it was very strange yeah
1: that's a really good one um yeah i mean she's just think about it like she's still influencing the city i mean the central subway yeah. and anyway um excellent nobody I mean, else rose could pack, get me in I'm the black. back of Jane Kim's <laughs> <hurting Nissan. laughs> i'm glad we got a really good rose pack Uh, story in your exit with you Audrey Um, and now I think we're on to the lightning round I can't believe I've never given this to you Audrey I'm
0: scared
2: (laughs) where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito
0: oh El Matate for sure
1: what is your fit? what's your order I, it doesn't
0: there? even matter, but you guys know I prefer forks, and <laughs> I can't wait to get to New York where nobody hazes me about my preference for eating a burrito <laughs> with a fork. It has to have tapatillo in it, but I don't know. It depends on the mood. Chicken, steak, it doesn't matter. Okay.
1: Are, are you going to eat pizza with a fork?
0: I, I mean, I, I just had pizza tonight, but it was like deep, deep dish, so I think that's appropriate, but like New York yeah. pizza, I don't wanna yeah. be, I don't want to be killed. i don't think you can do Do that that. (laughs) they're ruthless
2: what is your favorite movie filmed in san francisco
0: you guys know this it's so so i married an axe murderer (laughs) yeah there is no other answer
2: (laughs) where's your favorite place in the city to get a stiff drink besides the back smoke-filled room with rose pack and china
0: (laughs) oh favorite place um I mean, the favorite place or the place I go most often, I don't know. Either way. I, th- I think, well, I go most often to Executive Order, which is across the street from the Chronicle, because I'm there so much, and that's an easy place to go. But I think um, my favorite place is a tie between Specs and North Beach. I just love Specs. I love all the people there. It is a bar unlike anyone else in San Francisco. I give... I gave, I guess I should say, um, tours of North Beach, and I I just love the history of specs and the people there. Hi, Tony, Um, that's a great bar. And then also The Tempest, because I kind of became a, I was a baby editor there, and we would stay there drinking all night and talking to the people who lived on Sixth Street, and I have a lot of good chronicle memories from Mm -hmm. The Tempest, too. Until, you know, they sold it and, all the cool people came in, and that wasn't cool anymore. I preferred it when it was empty, and it was just journalists <laughs> who were drinking <laughs> too, too much and occasionally smoking.
1: I agree when it was like a, a bike messenger slash journalism bar, but they do have a really good cheeseburger yes, now. Yes, the box burgers, I, so. No,
0: I mean, there, it's yeah. <laughs> objectively, it's a million times better. I just can't get <laughs> in now, so it seems too cool. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Which is the better song? Tony Bennett's I left my heart in San Francisco yes. or Frank Sinatra's New York New York. I
0: don't I, I, oh my god, this is a ridiculous <laughs> question. Okay, do you Okay, so from the time my son was born <laughs> at CPMC, he every night to him we have sung I left my heart in San Aww. Francisco. He could sing this song before he could talk. He knew all the words to I left my heart in San Francisco. So, we have um, an Alexa that plays all of the music for him to go to bed and my husband <laughs> put on uh, New York, New York <laughs> Every time it goes on he, You'll hear him scream I hate this <laughs> song <laughs> So It might take a while For him to get accustomed to New York I don't know He's like a, He still is insisting on hearing Tony Bennett At night
2: okay. And are you going to still sing it to him in New York?
0: Yeah, because we will have left our heart in San Francisco
2: Oh, that's true Uh-oh. Which is more iconic, the Golden Gate Bridge Or the Statue of Liberty?
0: This, I, I just feel like you're trying to get me in trouble now.
1: Totally. Is been, this is
0: not fair, Heather. <laughs> I mean, isn't the Statue of Liberty older? I think it is, and therefore know. I'm going to cop out and say older is more iconic.
2: Okay. What will you miss most and least about San Francisco?
0: I will miss most all of you. Aww. and I, That's Aww. true and I will miss, um, it's such, it is the most beautiful city, and um, I mean, maybe I'll look back on this and say, I can't believe I thought it was more beautiful than New York, but it, I mean, California is beautiful, and I hated California when we moved here so much. I thought it was so weird, but there's, it's, there's, you can't deny it is just a beautiful city, and you know, when I first started at The Chronicle, John King, our urban design critic, explained to me that the thing that's even unique about how San Francisco is built is it's built where the towers are mostly on top of the hills and then they ratchet down so that everybody can have a view of the bay. And it's even even in its architecture, it's egalitarian. And I just I love that everybody has that appreciation that, no matter how much money you have, whether you're at the bottom of the hill in a you know two story apartment or you're at the top of the bill in one of those crazy condos on Green Street in Russian Hill or whatever, you still deserve a view of the bay and and I really love that and i mm-hmm. I have to say what I will not miss about it is i don't know if you would agree with this, heather, but it, it got it got to the point for me where politics and covering it became really disheartening because you know as as people will say San Francisco politics is like a knife fight in a phone booth everybody's so close together it gets more vicious the 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 less room there is for disagreement the more vicious the fights get and i think we're at a point in the city where we need more ambitious leadership. We need better ideas. We need less infighting. And the infighting now is it's not even like it was a few years ago. It's, it's not even as smart. It's not as intellectually curious. It's nastier. We had a parent at my kid's school who like started on Twitter about how I should get fired because they didn't like something in the quote. I mean like the, this is ridiculous mm-hmm. everybody agrees on certain principles in San Francisco where you wouldn't live here you agree that people should have a right to be safe and to be free of injustices and we have these San Francisco values that are derided by Fox News but I think that all of us really believe in and I think the city doesn't focus on that nearly enough. And we let these petty things tear us apart and distract us from the bigger picture, which is how do we stay a shining beacon on the hill for the rest of the country. And I I, I hope you all can see the forest for the trees. It, it was really hard for me to do it anymore. And I think we're in, in need of a really you know, a, a major earthquake of political thought in this city and leadership that will carry us forward. Because I do worry that this pandemic is going to destroy an economy where we rely on our essential workers and we rely on our restaurant workers and it's all of the things that we hold dear to our culture. And if we don't come together as a city and forget about who's running for supervisor in whatever stupid district, it's it's going to tear everybody apart and the lack of civil discourse is going to tear us apart. And then we're not better than any other part of the country that we see on the nightly news. And that Mm -hmm. makes me sad.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, that was a very good note to end on. And thank you for undergoing the lightning round. And we're going to miss you.
0: I'm going to miss you guys too. (laughs) And when you do sister act two, I expect you to call me from (laughs) New York and I will explain, explain to you why that movie also sucks.
2: Okay.
1: Thank you so much for everything that you've done. I mean, I've, I've had some real low points at the Chronicle. Um, I've had points where I thought I was going to have to have another career. And, um, and leadership that stood up there and didn't have a plan, didn't pretend to have a plan. And it was really disheartening as a journalist to have to represent the community and, and cover the community when there was no plan and when you came in there was a clear plan this is where we're going I'm going to take a chance I may be right or I may be wrong but this is the direction we're going you were decisive you made changes um, our diversity I go through that archive I can tell you <laughs> how white this place was and it is incredible what you've done in five and a half years here on that end and I uh, just the fact that you're on this podcast, I mean, we're, we're you're the editor in chief, and we're, you've come on my podcast to talk about movies, and you've embraced the fun of this community and of the paper, and really gotten behind some of Heather and my wackiest <laughs> ideas. You guys do have crazy ideas. Us.
0: <laughs> but I get a T-shirt out so of it every you. time you do it, so yeah. it's well worth it. Yes. No, you guys are great. I have I have all the confidence in the world to leave because you guys are gonna be here in the city kicking ass and taking names, so it'll be fine.
2: Yay. Well best of luck and I hope to visit you in New York soon.
0: Yep,
1: you should. (laughs) Bye. Best of luck, Audrey. Thank you very much.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: They're all sideways and I think broken home You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Heather Knight and Audrey Cooper. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.